Engaging Leader, Episode 143, Lessons from Starbucks on Leading with Values First. Featuring former Starbucks president Howard Bihar. Brought to you by Aspinall Communications and by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Hey, engagers, welcome to the show. I am so excited about today's show. We'll be talking to Howard Bihar. He was president of Starbucks North America and Starbucks International. He spent a combined 21 years helping grow the company into a worldwide phenomenon. In fact, he was absolutely integral to establishing and nurturing the Starbucks culture. Howard joined Starbucks in 1989 when it had only 28 stores, all located around Seattle, if you can remember back that far. And he helped lead its growth to over 15,000 stores spanning five continents by the time he retired. Now, if you're like me, uh, when you hear the name Howard related in reference to Starbucks, you assume we're going to talk about the CEO, Howard Schultz. But actually, there was a leadership team that was internally known as H2O, which uh, was was CEO Howard Schultz. Then Howard Bihar, who we're talking today, and then COO, CFO, Orrin Smith. And um, it was really the magic between the, among the three of them that, uh, and their leadership that developed the culture and systems that made Starbucks one of the most admired companies in the world. And in fact, I have heard Howard Schultz say that it was Howard Bihar who was um, a very key to the Starbucks approach from the very beginning about putting people and values first. And at various turning points in the history of Starbucks, they had to fight to hang on to its culture, its core values, and its passion uh, because they were growing exponentially, and that brought a lot of challenges to maintain that kind of culture. Howard Bihar has written two very good books. I've read both of them. Uh, it's not about the, the first one was It's Not About the Coffee, Lessons on Putting People First from a Life at Starbucks. And then his newest book is called The Magic Cup, a business parable about a leader, a team, and the power of putting people and values first. And today we're going to talk to Howard about his personal story and how he kind of learned his own values and how to be true to those and uh, how that fit into Starbucks and then how he was able to help lead the development of Starbucks values and culture, including going through some of the harder times. Howard, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate being here. Howard, tell us the story of how you came to Starbucks. Well, I was 44 years old. I had uh, been running a land development company that got in trouble that we had to sell, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. I didn't have really have any money. What I had was a lot of experience in running organizations and leading organizations. and I had made my mind up that I was not going to go to work for a corporation again. And so I started to look to buy a small company. And right out of the gate of leaving leaving uh, the company that I was president of, I ran into this guy named Howard Schultz. He was about 10 years younger than I was. And he had put it together a deal with some local venture capital money to buy Starbucks out. He bought There was about six stores when he bought it. And he didn't own, own much of the company. The investors owned the majority, vast majority of it. But 
And so he had this dream and we sat down and we talked and he had this long, he was looking for a VP of operations and there's things that he wanted and that I really didn't fit. You know, he wanted somebody with a college degree. I didn't have that. He wanted somebody with a food service experience. I didn't have that. Out of the list of 10 items, I basically fit one. I could breathe, <laughs> you know. And so we kind of just said, nice meeting you. And I moved on and and I kept looking for a business to buy. Finally, I found one and and I had to go to my brother-in-law to get some money. And my brother-in-law happened to know a guy that was helping Howard out. He was one of Howard's original investors. And the guy happened to know a lot about franchising, which was what I was going to be buying. And so he said, I want to go visit this guy. His name was Jack Rogers. And we went to visit him and we sat down in his little office, which was in the old Starbucks building. And I pitched my heart out. This is what I want to do. This was a great deal. And I was going to make a lot of money and and I could pay my brother-in-law back, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy just looked at me. Jack looked at me. He says, what do you want to do that for? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. And, you know, you could have heard my brother-in-law's sigh of relief all the way down to California from Seattle because he said, oh, man, I won't have to give him any money if he gets a job. <laughs> so I said, well, I've already been down the path, you know, about a year ago. And and Jack said, well, you know, Howard still hasn't found anybody that he likes. And you're the perfect guy for this. I don't know why you didn't get together. He said, I, I want you to talk to a couple other people. And so I did. And I ended up turning right instead of turning left. I, I went to work in the company. I asked if I could go to work in the company for a week before they made a decision before I made a decision because I wanted to check them out and I wanted them to have a chance to take a look at me. And so I volunteered my time for a week. I worked in the plant packing coffee. I worked in the stores, you know, serving customers. And I went out on the trucks delivering coffee to our wholesale accounts. And after that first week, I realized that it was a perfect fit for me. And they made an offer and I didn't refuse it. I just said, how much can you afford to pay me? And he said, X. And I said, that's fine. It was about a third of what I was making. But I said, here's what I want. I want equity. Now, Starbucks was a little privately held company. I didn't know if it was going to go public or not. But you cannot make money on a salary. Cannot. You know, you, you unless you really save, you know, you got to save at least 10 percent, you know, pre-tax. So but if you get equity, you got a shot. And I, I was always a risk taker because I didn't have a college degree. I had to do things other people wouldn't do. And so I took the risk of not getting much in cash, but getting a big chunk of equity. And, you know, that was certainly the right decision over time. But, you know, I came in as the VP of operation running all the stores and I had human resources reporting to me in the wholesale business. And um, so I had everything that touched the customer, basically. People, product and stores. Speaking of people, you are sort of known as the as the as the person who helped Starbucks realize that uh, they aren't really in the coffee business, just in the coffee business. They're in the people business. Tell us about that. Well, when I first got there, uh, you know, I you, you noticed I had I remember having the first meeting with all the store managers. There was only twenty eight of them and a couple of district managers, and all they wanted to talk about was coffee and all the distribution, everything that was a problem. You know, in their little opera in their operations, and I said, "So tell me about the people. What's going on with your people?" And they could hardly talk about it. They didn't even really think about it. You know, they just thought about because it was kind of how Howard led. Howard was kind of they used to call him the evil eye. You know, Howard was a perfectionist, and that's what he saw. And he couldn't understand why everybody didn't see it the way he did. But I understood that people are not perfect. You know, we all have our faults and we all make mistakes. And so I started asking questions about people. And then I started to get some customer letters that would come in. And there were three letters that came in right in a row. 
And basically what they said is, you know, we can go a lot of places and buy coffee. You know, you guys are so arrogant. You know, you think you know everything there is to know about coffee and you're going to let us know. We don't really care. What we want is a great cup of coffee. We want it hot and we want it served with a smile on your face. And so I brought those three customers in and I brought all the management team together. And I had those customers talk to us. And then I gave an opportunity for our people to, to ask questions. And that started setting the stage for a change. And then I, I put a sign up in my office. I have, I'm known for quotes and I had them all over my office wall. And it went like this, that we're not in the coffee business serving people, but we're in the people business serving coffee. And that became the battle cry. And people got it. It was a small play on words, but it kind of set the whole organization in a different direction. And that's what we drove. So you started as the VP of operations and eventually became the president of Starbucks North America and and uh, eventually the international. You, you also basically built the international Starbucks from the from right. ground up. Exactly. What was the hardest part in, in that journey? An international? Yes. Well, the hardest part was for us to learn that just because you want it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So we opened our first stores in Japan. Well, Japan had a lot of unwritten code, you know, that were really it was really geared to keep Western companies out. And God, it used to make me mad. I'd be ballistic, you know, da 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 da. I'd yell and scream until finally I realized that isn't getting us anywhere. And I had a partner. His name was Jin Long Wang, and Jin Long was uh, he was he was a Chinese national member of the Communist Party, and he came to go to school at Columbia Law School. And he was outspoken about Tiananmen and couldn't go back. And they wouldn't let him back in. And so he came to work for us. And Jim Long became my partner in putting deals together. And and how and he used to he brought me this quote one day. And it said, it, it, I don't remember the Chinese words, but the English words are big noise on stairs, nothing coming down. <laughs> and I started to laugh because I knew what he meant, you know. And he taught me how to have patience because you really had to build relationships first all across Asia, and that's where we were going first. And so I slowed down a lot, and I said, we're going to be the best at doing this. We'll be better than the Japanese or Chinese companies. And that's what we did. And so I had to learn some hard lessons. And once we got that going, then, you know, I'm a smile on my face and love in my heart. We made it happen. But it was always people stuff, always is people stuff. You know, one thing you learn is the world is a small place, Pretty much everybody's the same. Everybody wants to love and be loved. Everybody wants to grow as human beings. Everybody wants to be treated with respect and dignity. Everybody wants more for themselves and their families. And the rest of the stuff is secondary. It's the stuff that gets in our way if we let it, but it's really secondary or tertiary. And so we just said we're going to love them to death, and that's what we did. And that's what we brought to every country that we came to. And that's why we were so successful. Yeah, some of the stories that you told in your in your first book, it's not about the coffee, caught my attention about going the extra mile, uh, wh- whether it was corporate or a local store manager, to just make sure that you weren't seen when you entered a new market as uh, the a usurper or trying to take over the economy, but as being a, a good neighbor. I, th- I, th- I think it was um, maybe in Vancouver. It was Toronto. Toronto, yeah. Yeah, where we uh, had, there was a piece of real estate. It was a cafe that was already in existence. 
and the locals loved the cafe, but the landlord didn't want the guy there, and he wanted to rent it to us. But facts of the matter were that the pe people were mad. So we put an ad in the newspaper and said, you know, we don't need this site. It's okay. If you want this, if that's what you want there, that's fine. And so we just let it go. And, you know, we got big accolades for doing that. And from then on, you know, it knocked the walls down. And, you know, we we're just another uh, company trying to grow. And, you know, but what happens is and the Australians have a word or a name for it. They call it the tall poppy theory. Once the poppy gets tall, everybody wants to cut it down. <laughs> and that's the way it was. We were just human beings doing human work and trying to care about people and do things in the right way. But you know how it goes. So, you know, we learned those lessons and we used to take it personally. And then over time, we kind of let it go. In your first book, one of the big lessons is about wearing one hat and the, the lessons that this teaches, I think, carries through into your new book, The Magic Cup. Can you explain that principle for us? Sure. When I say wearing one hat, I'm not talking about the hats that we wear and the roles that we play. Mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, teacher. Those are roles. And you often hear, you know, my wife in particular, she always says to me, Howard, yeah, you can wear one hat. I got to do 30 things. But I'm not talking <laughs> about it. And you probably have heard that, too. Right. But I'm not talking about that hat. The hat I'm talking about is the hat that reflects who we are as a human being. Basically, what our values are, what our mission in life is, uh, what our goals are. It's, it's what shapes us, what informs and makes up who we are. I have one piece of paper that I carry with me all the time. It's Howard and 50 words or less. It's basically a picture and words of Howard. And it starts with my values. It's, it, it basically is saying, Howard... Here's what matters to you, and here's here's what you want, how you want to live your life, and and so that's the hat that I'm talking about. You know, all too often we live our lives trying to be what other people want us to be. You know, we get married and our spouse wants us to be somebody else, and that's usually because we haven't talked about who, what our values are and get agree, getting agreement on that those values work with each other. Sometimes they don't, by the way. It's what causes divorces where values don't align and you don't either you haven't talked about it and tried to work it out or you have and you just can't work it out. But that's where it starts. And that's the same. And, you know, when you go to work for a company, why should you work for a company where your values don't align with that company? You're going to be miserable. You know, or, you know, everybody has had the experience where their values don't align with their boss. And you're miserable. You hate going to work every day and you go home and you talk to your uh, you know, your friends or your wife, how, how much you hate your boss and how he or she doesn't really care. You know, all that stuff that goes on. And that's why it's so important to be clear about who you are. Because when you're not clear, then, you know, that saying, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. It's the same thing in organizations. If you don't know what your values are, then you're going to just join any company. Then you're just getting a job. And you are not going to have a very fulfilling life. So that's what I'm talking about. Some of the way I think in which you define values is different than you typically hear in corporate America, you know, values, uh, you know, integrity and honesty that I, I, I think most people identify with. And where I realized that you were thinking about them a little bit broad, more broadly was when you, you told a story uh, early in your career while you're still in the furniture business that actually connected with some experiences I had early in, in my career, but it was where you, re, you and the, I think it was the CEO or president of that company 
um, and his initial influence on you that sort of caused you to put on a different hat that it wasn't a good fit for you? Yeah, I was, uh, I was worked for a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental. I was actually the CEO and chairman. And he was a much older guy. I was 27. He was about 57. And he grew up in an autocratic family. You know, his idea of management by walking around was you walk to his office. He never walked to yours. <laughs> and that's just who he was. He wasn't a bad human being, but it was just who he was. It was old school. And I had just been promoted to um, to vice president, which I never thought I would ever get. I didn't have a college degree. And anyway, I didn't care. I loved my work. I had a lot of accountability and responsibility. And I got promoted, and they had parties for me. And one day, I was standing by the elevator, and he came up to me, and his name was Walker Treese. And he said, Howard, I, I know I'm not the first to congratulate you, but I just want to congratulate you. And he extended his hand, and I shook his hand. I said, thanks, Walker. And then he said that little three-letter word, but... <laughs> There's something that I'd like to talk to you about. And I, you know, I'm thinking Jesus, excuse me, God is talking to me. You know, it could be Jesus, Moses, or Muhammad, somebody. <laughs> you know, and I was all ears. And he said, one of the things I've noticed about you, Howard, is that you always wear your heart on your sleeve. Everybody notices what you're feeling. And I said, yes, Walker. And he said, well, if you want to be a great leader, you're going to have to learn to manage that a lot better. You know, not show your emotions. Keep your emotions close to your vest. Don't show what you're, how you're feeling because, you know, emotions aren't a good thing to have in companies. So he's talking. I'm thinking, okay, why did they promote me? They knew who I was. I thought that's what they liked about me. And then he said, the other thing I've noticed about you, when you're in meetings and a subject comes up, you're always willing to express your opinion. And great executives don't do that. They may something say something like, you know, let me think about it for a couple of days and I'll get back to you to show that you're a really thoughtful, intelligent person. <laughs> but I I was always just out there and my emotions were out there. And, you know, sometimes it served me well, sometimes not so well. But everybody always knew who I was and what I stood for. So I went home that night and I talked to my wife and I said, honey, you will not believe this. I said, here's the conversation with I had with Walker and I don't know what I'm going to do. Then I remembered something my mom said to me, you know, she said, Howard, before you go to say anything, sit on your hands. You know, she didn't mean literally sit on your hands, but she was basically saying, think about it. So I thought, well, I can do that. But I, I took it to heart and I said, I'm going to sit on my hands in meetings. And I did. I put my hands underneath my butt in meetings to remind myself to be in the meeting, but to not be there, you know, mm. to not show any emotion. It was a reminder to me, you know, because I couldn't wave my arms, you know, which I'm pretty expressive. And after a while, my arms got tired, my butt got tired, and I kind of looked <laughs> stupid. So I said, there's got to be a better way. So I took a box of paper clips. You know, those little boxes of paper clips? Yeah. And I, I opened the box at a meeting. I'd start take a paper clip out, start bending the paper clip until it broke. Then I'd grab another one. Again, all in an attempt to manage my behavior and to my emotions, to keep my mind there but not there. Then I thought, that's expensive. There's got to be a cheaper way. <laughs> so I took, you know, legal pads. I always had a legal pads. Well, there's 50 sheets of paper on a legal pads. That means there's 100 corners. And I'd rip off corners of the legal pad and I'd make them into little tiny balls. As a matter of fact, as I'm talking to you, I'm doing one now. It's a habit I've never lost. Mm. And uh, I'd make them into little balls, throw them underneath the table. And I'd, by the end of the meeting, I had a little pile. <laughs> Again, trying to, you know, to manage my behavior. Finally, I said, I got to do something that doesn't show. So I remember the word mimeograph? Yes. Well, I mimeographed up a couple hundred little pieces of paper. They're about a quarter inch by an inch and a half. And I typed on them, Howard, shut up. <laughs> and 
And I'd take one of those to the meeting, I'd put it out in front of me, and nobody could see it, could read it, but I knew what it meant. Again, all in an attempt to manage my emotions and to manage my the dialogue, you know. Well, after about two months of doing this, I literally fell into a depression because I went from a guy that loved his work to a guy that hated his job. I would do anything not to be in a meeting, and I, I went from a guy that was got to work early every day to I was late all the time. I just didn't want to be there anymore. It was too emotional. It was too hard on me. I wasn't. I was trying to be somebody other than what I, you know, myself. You know, Walker had. It wasn't like he was asking me to change my slacks color or my shoes. You know, he was trying to get me to change who I was as a human being. So the he wanted you to act more, quote, professional. Yeah, he wanted me to be professional, executive-like. Well, you know, that was his opinion of what an executive was. Mm-hmm. The problem was, you know, it just didn't fit with me. So finally, one night I went home, and I said to my wife, who was six months, or who was almost, uh, it was about over almost nine months, or almost we're two weeks away from giving birth to our first, to our daughter, Serena who's now 44 years old. And I said to her, I want to quit. I hate my work. Unfortunately, we'd bought a new car. We had payments. We didn't have any money saved. A tear came down her face, and I started to cry. I knew what she was thinking. What kind of father am I going to be? Quits his job. No money saved. You know, the baby's coming due. But she just looked at me. She said, Howard, do what you need to do. We'll figure it out. So that night, I typed up a letter of resignation. I went in the next day. And I got there early that morning. As I walked through the front door, there was one of my co-vice presidents, a guy named Jerry Alto. And Jerry said, hey, Howard, you got time for a cup of coffee? Well, shit, yeah, I was quitting that morning. Nobody else was there. <laughs> so, you know, I had time for anything. So Jerry and I sat down to have a cup of coffee. I no sooner sat my butt down in the chair, and Jerry just looked at me, and he kind of screamed at me. He said, Howard, what the hell is wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? What's wrong with me? He said, well, the guy that we all supported to be our next vice president, you're not that guy anymore. And he said, you know, the guy that we could always depend on to speak his mind, to show his emotion in meetings, which got the rest of us going. It's like you're in it all for yourself now. You're not going to take any chances that you think you're a vice president now and you got to be somebody different. And a lot of us are thinking we made a mistake. And I had never shared that experience with Walker because I was too embarrassed. You know, I was young. And in those days, you know, when you're when a chairman's talked to you, you were all ears. You never there was no mouth working at all, you know. And so I told Jerry the story and then he started to laugh, which really made me mad. <laughs> and I said, you know, I he said, Walker didn't mean that. I said, baloney. I was there. You weren't there. He meant every word he said. No, he said, we're going to go talk to Walker. We're going to clean this up when Walker gets in. So I said, you go talk to Walker. He said, no, I'm taking you with me. And we did. And he grabbed me by the proverbial ear. And Walker and I made peace. And But the truth of the matter is Walker meant every word that he said. He just came, like I said, from that autocratic family. That's how he ran his business. You know, people are to be seen and not heard, so to speak, you know, unless he wanted to hear from them. And so, and the problem was, I didn't know who I was. So I, you know... About a few months later, you know, my direct boss, the guy that was a president, a guy named Jim Jensen, who was probably the most productive mentor I've ever had. He one day we were walking down the hallway and he asked me a question. He said, Howard, what do you love more, people or furniture? Mm. And I had, you know, Grand Tree Furniture Rental. We were in the furniture business. Well, I had been in the furniture business for quite a long time and I thought it was furniture that I loved. But, you know, he kind of stunned me. You know, I'd never really thought about it. You know, I thought, well, I love furniture. You know, people are part of it. But and 
I came back to him a week later or two weeks later, and I said, you know, Jim, it was a great question. What I love is people. And that put me on a journey of trying to discover who I was. So Jim uh, recommended that I read this book. And the first chapter of the book said, you have to decide what your core, eight core values are. I never thought about it. I was just Howard Lib being Howard, Happy Howie, they used to call me. <laughs> and uh, I never thought about my values. You know, I guess I had decent values, things that your parents instill in you or life instills in you, you know, but I never really thought about it. And so there are 300 words in this book that you could have used, you know, as to distill to your eight core values. I got it down to 50, and then it took me forever to get it down to eight. But I finally did, and I had, I had my eight core values. The second chapter of the book said that you got to take those eight core values and you have to define what they are, what they mean to you. In other words, because they're not just words, they're actions. The values represent actions and decisions that you make in your life and how you're going to make them. And so I had to define those eight core values. I did that. And then, it, then the third chapter of the book said you have to write a personal mission statement. I never even heard what a personal mission statement was. You know, in those days, there were, companies didn't have mission statements. We had budgets, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That was our mission, our budget, you know. Uh, so anyway, so I, I went through and I, I created my mission statement. And, and I can't even remember the first one. It was something like that. I wanted to be an, um, known as a uh, uh one of the great leaders in the home furnishings industry. And, but I've changed it. My, my mission statement today is I want to live my life every day, nurturing and inspiring the human spirit of myself and others. To live my life every day, nurturing and inspiring the human spirit of myself and others. And the reason I say self is because I've learned that you have to take care of yourself emotionally and physically, mentally, in order to be able to do anything for anybody else. And then the, uh, uh, fourth chapter or fifth chapter of the book said uh, you had to write a statement about how you wanted to do everything. And I came up with my six P's. My first P is purpose. Everything I do has to have a purpose greater than myself. It has to be something bigger than me. The second P is I have to do it with passion. And that means I'm going to tell the world about what my greater purpose is. I'm going to constantly be reminding myself why you know, why I'm passionate about my purpose. And then the third P is everything I do has to be with persistence. One of the things I've learned in life, great, great people are persistent. It doesn't make any difference whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're athletes, whether they're mothers, their fathers, their brothers. It doesn't make any difference what you do. You've got to do it with persistence. You just can't give up when the going gets tough. You, you got to find your way around, over, under, whatever it is, but you got to get there, you know. And then the fourth P is, is patience. It takes patience to get things done sometimes. And the most important person you got to be patient with, patient with is yourself. Because it's, you know, we can get very impatient. And sometimes you have to be persistent, but you got to do it with patience. And then the fifth, the, uh, the fifth P is performance. Performance matters. We hate that word. We don't want to be measured. We don't, you know, the biggest argument we're having in this country today is over performance. You know, teachers don't want to be measured. Students don't want to be measured. Parents of students don't want their kids to be measured. Nobody wants to fail. You know, nobody wants to screw up, you know. Uh, and But the facts are we're getting measured every day. 
if you have a significant other in your life, you're getting measured. Whether it's stated or not, you're getting measured. If you don't take out the garbage, and your job to get take out the garbage, trust me, I that's one of my jobs. And if I don't, I hear from the other end of the house, Howard, you know, how come the garbage isn't out, you know? And performance matters, you know, and when we make commitments to other people in our lives, it matters that we live up to that commitment. And performance is important in our personal lives, in our work lives, in our lives with our kids. The performance and what performance matters most to, the person that matters most to is you. Every night I go, before I go to bed, I look in the mirror and I say, Howard, how did you do today? Against your mission, against your goals, against your values. And, you know, there are a lot of days I don't do so well. But performance does matter. And then the final P is people. Everything we do in life is about people. Everything. There's nothing more important than serving other human beings. And so all of the things, your, your, your values, your mission, your goals, you know, I have a five-year plan that I do. And at my age, that's getting pretty optimistic. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I have a five-year plan with very written out specific and measurable goals about things I want to accomplish, things I want to do. And we have a family planning session. My wife and I, every couple of years we go away and we go to a great place and we write out our own personal goals, what we want for ourselves, because we're still a couple, we're still individuals, and then we also have, uh, you know, a, a, a personal uh, goals that we do, and so all of this goes together, and so that's what it's about, and that's Howard. Hey, engagers, we'll get back to the show in a few seconds, but I want to tell you a little story about FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. A while back, I was meeting with a longtime client to plan some workforce communications for a big change their company was making. At a break in the meeting, he told me that his company was formulating their budgets for the coming year, and he wondered if I had a rough idea of how much our firm, Aspendale, had charged them over the past few years for our consulting. I told him I could do better than just a rough idea. I whipped out my laptop, connected to the internet, and in less than a minute, pulled a summary report. He was very impressed that our system was so fast, simple, and powerful. FreshBooks makes it easy to provide great service to our clients. Our team uses it to keep track of our billable time, record expenses, send professional-looking invoices by email or paper, and keep track of invoices that still need to be paid. And guess what? FreshBooks is offering a month of unrestricted use to our listeners totally free right now, and you don't need a credit card for the trial. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com forward slash leader and enter engaging leader in the section that says, how did you hear about us? So when you came to Starbucks and you had to, were making a decision about whether this was a good fit for you when all the initial indicators said no because you only had you only met about nine uh, one out of the ten requirements they had, what was it uh, that fit your one hat? How, how did somehow the you in in one week were able to pick up on the these values were going to be so consistent with who you are that you were going to become was going to be your 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 life for the next 21 years. Well, you remember I said before about I really uh, I believe that every, that the person who sweeps the floor should choose the room. In other words, that people should get to vote in their own areas of expertise. Yes. Well, you know, I noticed that in Howard that that he gave his people lots of room. Even though he was a young leader, somehow he intrinsically understood that. The second thing is is that he wanted everybody to have a piece of the company, which was part of my goals. I had written out what my goals were for my next, what my next gig was going to be, whether I owned a company or I was going to work someplace, that everybody had to have a piece of the action. 
And it didn't make any difference what they did in the company. They had a piece. And Howard was all for that. And so, and then just spending time with the people. You know, I realized that uh, although we disagreed on some things, I realized that they were good human beings. I have this saying that I call it the walls talk. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that walls absorb energy of, of people, whether it's organizations or whether it's in somebody's home. And you want to challenge yourself sometime. Next time you go to visit some people and they say, would, they, would you like something to drink? Say yes, but don't follow them into the kitchen. Sit in the living room and close your eyes for a second. You will feel the energy in that home, mm-hmm. both good and bad. And when I did that final interview with Howard before I made the decision to join, I remember going into that office building and I could feel the energy in the place. And I was listening for it, you know, and I know I'm sounding crazy, but I had a boss when I was 21 <laughs> years old. He taught me to do that. I was managing a small furniture store in Salem, Oregon. He said, Howard, once a week, I want you to close the doors after the office, after hours, and I want you to turn off all the lights, and I want you to go sit in the middle of the store, and I want you to just, I want you to put your antenna on. I want you to raise your antenna really high, and I want you to just listen for what's going on here. And it was one of the most valuable lessons I've ever gotten because I, I did it and I learned so many things. You'd say, well, how can you learn anything from that? Well, I put my one night I was there and, I, and my antenna was way up and I feel something was off. The next morning I came into the office and I called the staff and I said, is there anything going on here that I should know about? You know, and I didn't know. And finally, somebody stood up and said, yeah. We're kind of unhappy with our compensation structure, but everybody's afraid to talk to you about it, mm. right? And, you know, I, it, it just, I don't know how it works, but it works. Yeah, they just, uh, you're picking, just picking up on the, the wrong kind of energy in that yeah. situation. And so I learned to put that antenna up all the time. Now, you're, in your new book, The Magic Cup, which is a, a parable, we meet this uh, brand new CEO who joins up with a team with a, with a with a company and you're telling a story about the importance of knowing what's truly important to you what your personal core values are and surrounding yourself with people who share those same values how right. do you so you're basically making sure that you're in a place that fits your one hat and that you've got people that have that are compatible with with that one hat how how do you do that as a leader well, I mean, you start by having good dialogue and conversations and observing and uh, by asking questions and keeping your mouth shut. And, and you start to figure out, okay, who your people are and, 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 and then that allow them to ask questions of you and, and personalized settings, you know, not just business settings. And, and sooner rather than later, you start to recognize who your people are and who you are. And then you start to say to your people, can we define who we are in words? What are our values? What, what do you think our values are? And then you start writing those things down. You do basically what I did. You know, you don't need to have long, these long things for your purpose and mission statement and, and uh, your, your values. I mean, it's, it can be very short. Matter of fact, shorter the better, but it really needs to define who you are. And it has to be bottom up, top down. Hmm. You, you, you can't, if you can't live with it as a leader, then, then you either have to get people that can live with what you want. Or, and if the people can't live with what you want, then, then it has, they have to find another place. And it happens in organizations. You know, 
you find you run into people all the time that just don't share your values. Well, you know, they can't stay. And sometimes leaders have to go because they can't, they can't, you know, new leaders come into organizations sometimes and they're so disruptive, they can't stay. Because the organization had certain values and the leader didn't recognize that, came in and tried to change it and the whole organization blows up. Way too often, boards of directors make that mistake. They say, well, I'll just let it go. You can't. You know, you can't because it'll take you forever to change that organization. That's why I always used to instruct new people that I'd hired. I don't want you to make one person people decision for six to nine months. As a matter of fact, you're not allowed to. Unless you catch somebody stealing, you cannot make one people decision because you need to know your people first before you do anything. You can't make judgments without really understanding and they need to know you. And, you know, so, you know, it's it's the same way you do it in families. It's dialogue. It's conversation, right? It's communication. What makes a great marriage Lots and lots and lots of communication. And it's done all the time. It's not done once a quarter. It's not done once a year. And it's not done when you're mad. It's done, it's done when they're, you know, it's kind of just easy going times. You're having those conversations. And and that's if you do that, that's what keeps marriages together. That's what builds trust. And that's the same thing in organizations. There's no way around it. So initially it's just informal casual conversations talking about what's important to each other and how do we work together yeah and then you start to document those things and you you make it a little more formal and and that's what we did at starbucks and and uh you know we did it at a time when we were kind of struggling because we you know when you're a small company like a small family you kind of know what each other's doing it's like a basketball team you know you after a while you get to know where everybody is on the floor even without looking and but when you get bigger, that doesn't happen. And so we had to document, write everything down, and then that's what we used. And when we needed to change something, we did. But but it was really it was really important to write it down. And we then we created what we call this little uh, green apron book. The green apron book basically documented who we were, what our values were, and how we do things in our organization. Now in the magic cup, we're looking at a leader who enters an organization that is rather screwed up. So it's not wasn't quite so much documenting what the uh, current values were. It required changing that organization. Yeah, because the the yeah well he decided that he wanted to because the organization had had a really bad autocratic leader, a dishonest leader, a board of directors that was out of touch with everything, and he had to come to grips with that very quickly. And he had to make a decision. Was he, you know, he was kind of forced into it, right? It was, you know, that kind of proverbial first day on the job when he realized, uh-oh, I didn't know any of this, right? This thing is, it's dishonest here. Something's really wrong. And he, and that was that journey. And he had to, he had to conquer his fears. He had to make decisions. He had to figure out who he could trust, who he couldn't trust, and and who belonged there and who didn't belong there. And that wasn't easy. And it was, you know, it's fiction. It was a parable you know, or a fable, you know, but it was that journey basically, you know, that, that little story basically was pretty much all true. You know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, but it was, you know, in some form or another, all true, because it starts with the, with the idea that he gets there the first day and all of a sudden there's layoffs going on. Nobody told him there was going to be layoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He'd been all through the interviews, everything. And, <laughs> 
right? And he gets there and he finds out, and and then he find and that the boss is lying and the board is lying, mm. right? And yeah. he's trying to figure out what's going on here, and so he's thrust into it, and that happens. And he had to make some quick decisions, and he had to go on this journey, and he had to decide what his values were and how he was going to lead. So this takes book takes some inspiration from uh, events that happened either in your life or did you observe them in somebody else's life? Um, most of it all happened in my life. Well, it did. I was thinking also about at Starbucks, uh, I forget if it was in the late 90s or the early part of this century, when you guys, there was some, some leadership changes and you guys took a step back and said, wait a minute, we've kind of gotten off course a bit and we're hearing negative things from our customers and you, you had to change uh, some of your your people I guess cultural uh, well what happened was is the downturn came it was really 2006 2007 we felt it really early and and Howard started believing that the problem was the people that it was operations and I believed it wasn't I said, do we have, did we have problems? Yeah, but we always had problems. That, you know, that was part, that's part of any journey. It's an endless series of, of fixing things, you know, and, and, and once in a while you get a string of things going right. But, and I argue with Howard, I said, it's not the problem. It's, we're just, we're feeling the recession and he was insistent. So he basically closed the stores down for a day, for a night. And he said, we're going to retrain everybody. Well, how do you think that made everybody feel? <laughs> Were they ha were they feeling good about themselves? No. And he said, "We're going to do these eight things." Not one of the eight things stuck mm. because he just made autocratic decisions. And and then we went through all these layoffs. We were going to have some layoffs because we closed six hundred stores. You know, you're going to have the layoffs in the stores, but we laid off a whole slew of people that had been with us a long time. Well, it, it totally broke trust. Mm. And uh, that was the story about the layoffs. And I was on the board at that time. I wasn't in operations. And I so disagreed with it, I resigned from the board. Hmm. And um, because I just thought it was the wrong thing to do. And I think it proved out to be wrong. We broke trust. It's, they've never gained it back. And they lost people that are heart. They bled Starbucks. You can't buy that. No. You cannot buy it. And uh, so... You know, that was that story about the layoffs. And, and uh, you know, you're going to have layoffs. I've been through it myself at, at one of the, the company that I led. You know, and, you know, it, you make mistakes sometimes. I've learned a lot. On the other hand, another company in our town didn't lay off one person, Costco. They were a lot bigger than we were. Mm -hmm. They didn't lay off one person. That's amazing. You know, and companies around the world, particularly, you know, German companies, they what they did was they said, we're going to cut back on wages, but we're going to keep our people. And the bosses took the big cutbacks. That's what Starbucks should have done. That's pretty unusual. Yeah, but why? That's what we got to do. That's what builds trust. And that's what keeps organizations together. You know, look, Starbucks wasn't losing money. They were making tons of money at the time, just not as much as uh, Wall Street wanted them to make mm -hmm. or what we were making. But there was nothing intrinsically wrong with the business. There was a we had a huge beginning of a huge recession. Well, you got to you have to really recognize what the problem is before you go to fix things, because we tried to fix things that weren't broken. Yeah. And you talk you talk a lot about servant leadership nowadays and. Yeah. That would be 
when you break trust like that, it definitely flies in the face of servant leadership. But you're right. If if the if the leaders make the deepest compensation cuts, that's definitely a sign of being a servant leader. Yeah, I argued with Howard. I said, Howard, you, uh, I was on the board, and the only I, I because I was an insider, I couldn't get paid like other board members. The other board members made about two hundred thousand dollars in cash compensation plus stock. The only compensation that I got was shares of options. And I was going to get 10,000 shares of options, which was a lot, you know. And I said to the head of the comp committee, I said, I don't want them. We don't deserve them now. We're not doing well. And I don't want the money you give me to come out of the off the backs of the people in the organization. And I wanted to set the example. I tried to talk to the head of the comp committee. I said, Howard shouldn't get it. Nobody should. No senior executive should get any options. And matter of fact, we shouldn't get any raises. But, you know, couldn't talk them into it. And I never did get those shares, and that's when I left. I just left. I just said, I can't live with this. Wow, that's amazing. Well, we've been talking to Howard Bihar about his latest book, The Magic Cup, and his first book, It's Not About the Coffee. Howard, where can people find out more about you and your books and and uh, stay in touch with what you're up to these days? Well, I'm on on LinkedIn and on Twitter, and uh, my email address is hb at howardbihar.com, and you can find it. You know, in the it's actually in the books, and uh, I also have a website uh, at www.howardbihar.com. And I will talk to anybody if you have a question or you write, send me an email. You'll get a response. You'll get a call back, one way or another. It may take me a while. You know, I'm getting slower on this email stuff, but. <laughs> But, but I will do it. So since retiring from Starbucks, um, besides writing these two books, what kind of work have you been doing? So I do a lot of speaking around the world, and uh, I enjoy that. I meet wonderful people, and I find out what's going on in leadership around the world. I'm on five boards. I'm on, uh, I was on the Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership Board. Now I'm on the Gonzaga University in Spokane's uh, Leadership Board. I'm on the University of Washington Foundation Board. I'm on three uh, corporate boards, small ones, things that matter to me. And uh, I, 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 I work with six second-year MBA students every year from the University of Washington as a mentor. And I enjoy that work tremendously. And I'm just trying to help people have better lives. And, uh, you know, I do it in my small way. And if I can help one person have a better life over time, then that's that's rewarding for me. Well, very cool. And as I'm sure our listeners can tell, there are so many great stories in both of these books. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. I definitely recommend everybody to get your hands on those books. Howard, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you for having me. All right, Engagers, that wraps up today's episode. We'll provide the information and links that Howard mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. Thank you to our sponsor, FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Remember, you can claim a free month if you go to freshbooks.com forward slash leader and enter Engaging Leader in the section that says, how did you hear about us? This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find us at asmodalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, 
and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.